This is Reformed Classics, audio productions of classic Reformed works. Today we're continuing our presentation of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. Book 1, Chapter 14. In the creation of the world and all things in it, the true God distinguished by certain marks from fictitious gods. Sections. 1. The mere fact of creation should lead us to acknowledge God, but to prevent our falling away to Gentile fictions. God has been pleased to furnish a history of the creation. An impious objection. Why the world was not created sooner. Answer to it. Shrewd saying of an old man. 2. For the same reason the world was created, not in an instant, but in six days, the order of creation described, showing that Adam was not created until God had, with infinite goodness, made ample provision for him. 3. The doctrine concerning angels expounded, first, that we may learn from them also to acknowledge God, second, that we may be put on our guard against the errors of the worshippers of angels and the Manichees, Manichaeism refuted, rule of piety. 4. The angels created by God, at what time and in what order it is inexpedient to inquire, the garrulity of the pseudo-Dionysius. 5. The nature, offices, and various names of angels. And 6. Angels, the dispensers of the divine beneficence to us. Section 1. Although Isaiah justly charges the worshippers of false gods with stupidity in not learning from the foundations of the earth and the circle of the heavens who the true God is, Isaiah 40.21, yet so sluggish and groveling is our intellect that it was necessary he should be more clearly depicted in order that the faithful might not fall away to Gentile fictions. The idea that God is the soul of the world though the most tolerable that philosophers have suggested, is absurd, and therefore it was of importance to furnish us with a more intimate knowledge in order that we might not wander to and fro in uncertainty. Hence God was pleased that a history of the creation should exist, a history on which the faith of the church might lean without seeking any other God than him whom Moses sets forth as the creator and architect of the world. First, in that history, the period of time is marked so as to enable the faithful to ascend by an unbroken succession of years to the first origin of their race and of all things. This knowledge is of the highest use, not only as an antidote to the monstrous fables which anciently prevailed both in Egypt and the other regions of the world, but also as a means of giving a clearer manifestation of the eternity of God as contrasted with the birth of creation, and thereby inspiring us with higher admiration. We must not be moved by the profane jeer that it is strange how it did not sooner occur to the deity to create the heavens and the earth, instead of idly allowing an infinite period to pass away, during which thousands of generations might have existed, while the present world is drawing to a close before it has completed its six thousandth year, why God delayed so long, it is neither fit nor lawful to inquire. Should the human mind presume to do it, it could only fail in the attempt, nor would it be useful for us to know what God, 
as a trial of the modesty of our faith, has been pleased purposely to conceal? It was a shrewd saying of a good old man, who, when someone pertly asked in derision what God did before the world was created, answered, He made a hell for the inquisitive. This reproof, not less weighty than severe, should repress the tickling wantonness which urges many to indulge in vicious and hurtful speculation. In fine, let us remember that that invisible God, whose wisdom, power, and justice are incomprehensible, is set before us in the history of Moses as in a mirror, in which his living image is reflected. For as an eye, either dimmed by age or weakened by any other cause, sees nothing distinctly without the aid of glasses, so such is our imbecility. If Scripture does not direct us in our inquiries after God, we immediately turn vain in our imaginations. Those who now indulge their petulance and refuse to take warning will learn when too late how much better it had been reverently to regard the secret counsels of God than to belch forth blasphemies which pollute the face of heaven. Justly does Augustine complain that God is insulted whenever any higher reason than his will is demanded. He also, in another place, wisely reminds us that it is just as improper to raise questions about infinite periods of time as about infinite space. However wide the circuit of the heavens may be, it is of some definite extent. But should anyone expostulate with God that vacant space remains exceeding creation by a hundredfold, must not every pious mind detest the presumption? Similar is the madness of those who charge God with idleness in not having pleased them by creating the world countless ages sooner than he did create it. In their cupidity they affect to go beyond the world as if the ample circumference of heaven and earth did not contain objects numerous and resplendent enough to absorb all our senses, as if in the period of six thousand years God had not furnished facts enough to exercise our minds in ceaseless meditation. Therefore let us willingly remain hedged in by those boundaries within which God has been pleased to confine our persons, and as it were, enclose our minds, so as to prevent them from losing themselves by wandering unrestrained. Section 2 with the same view, Moses relates that the work of creation was accomplished not in one moment, but in six days. By this statement, we are drawn away from fiction to the one God who thus divided his work into six days, that we may have no reluctance to devote our whole lives to the contemplation of it. For though our eyes, in what direction soever they turn, are forced to behold the works of God, we see how fleeting our attention is and how quickly pious thoughts, if any arise, vanish away. Here, too, objection is taken to these progressive steps as inconsistent with the power of God, until human reason is subdued to the obedience of faith, and learns to welcome the calm quiescence to which the sanctification of the seventh day invited us. In the very order of events, we ought diligently to ponder on the paternal goodness of God toward the human race, in not creating Adam until he had liberally enriched the earth with all good things. Had he placed him on an earth barren and unfurnished, had he given life before light, he might have seemed to pay little regard to his interest. But now that he has arranged the motions of the sun and stars for man's use, has replenished the air, earth, and water 
with living creatures and produced all kinds of fruit in abundance for the supply of food by performing the office of a provident and industrious head of a family. He has shown his wondrous goodness toward us. These subjects, which I only briefly touch, if more attentively pondered, will make it manifest that Moses was a sure witness and herald of the one only Creator. I do not repeat what I have already explained. That I mention here is made not of the bare essence of God, but that His eternal wisdom and Spirit are also set before us, in order that we may not dream of any other God than Him who desires to be recognized in that express image. Section 3 But before I begin to treat more fully of the nature of man, it will be proper to say something of angels. For although Moses, in accommodation to the ignorance of the generality of men, does not in the history of the creation make mention of any other works of God than those which meet our eye, yet seeing he afterwards introduces angels as the ministers of God, we easily infer that he for whom they do service is their creator. Hence, though Moses, speaking in popular language, did not at the very commencement enumerate the angels among the creatures of God, nothing prevents us from treating distinctly and explicitly of what is delivered by Scripture concerning them in other places. For if we desire to know God by his works, we surely cannot overlook this noble and illustrious specimen. We may add that this branch of doctrine is very necessary for the refutation of numerous errors. The minds of many are so struck with the excellence of angelic natures that they would think them insulted in being subjected to the authority of God, and so made subordinate. Hence a fancied divinity has been assigned to them. Manes, too, has arisen with his sect, fabricating to himself two principles, God and the devil, attributing the origin of good things to God, but assigning all bad natures to the devil as their author. Were this delirium to take possession of our minds, God would be denied his glory in the creation of the world. Foreseeing there is nothing more peculiar to God than eternity and autosia, that is self-existence or existence of himself, if I may so speak, do not those who attribute it to the devil in some degree invest him with the honor of divinity? And where is the omnipotence of God if the devil has the power of executing whatever he pleases against the will, and notwithstanding of the opposition of God? But the only good ground which the Manichees have, that it were impious to ascribe the creation of anything bad to a good God, militates in no degree against the Orthodox faith, since it is not admitted that there is anything naturally bad throughout the universe. The depravity and wickedness, whether of man or of the devil, and the sins thence resulting being not from nature, but from the corruption of nature, nor at first did anything whatever exist that did not exhibit some manifestation of the divine wisdom and justice. To obviate such perverse imaginations, we must raise our minds higher than our eyes can penetrate. It was probably with this view that the Nicene Creed, in calling God the creator of all things, makes express mention of things invisible. My care, however, must be to keep within the bounds which piety prescribes, lest by indulging in speculations beyond my reach, I bewilder the reader and lead him away from the simplicity of the faith. And since the Holy Spirit always instructs us in what is useful, 
but altogether omits or only touches cursorily on matters which tend little to edification. Of all such matters, it certainly is our duty to remain in willing ignorance. Section 4 Angels, being the ministers appointed to execute the commands of God, must of course be admitted to be his creatures, but to stir up questions concerning the time or order in which they were created bespeaks more perverseness than industry. Moses relates that the heavens and the earth were finished with all their host. What avails it anxiously to inquire at what time other more hidden celestial hosts than the stars and planets also began to be? Not to dwell on this, let us here remember that on the whole subject of religion, one rule of modesty and soberness is to be observed, and it is this, in obscure matters, not to speak or think or even long to know more than the word of God has delivered. The second rule is this, that in reading the scriptures we should constantly direct our inquiries and meditations to those things which tend to edification, not indulge in curiosity or in studying things of no use. And since the Lord has been pleased to instruct us, not in frivolous questions, but in solid piety, in the fear of his name, in true faith, and the duties of holiness, let us rest satisfied with such knowledge. Wherefore, if we would be duly wise, we must renounce those vain babblings of idle men concerning the nature, ranks, and number of angels without any authority from the word of God. I know that many fasten on these topics more eagerly and take greater pleasure in them than in those relating to daily practice. But if we decline not to be the disciples of Christ, let us not decline to follow the method which he has prescribed. In this way, being contented with him for our master, we will not only refrain from, but even feel averse to superfluous speculations which he discourages. None can deny that Dionysius, whoever he may have been, has many shrewd and subtle disquisitions in his celestial hierarchy, but on looking at them more closely, everyone must see that they are merely idle talk. The duty of a theologian, however, is not to tickle the ear, but confirm the conscience by teaching what is true, certain, and useful. And when you read the work of Dionysus, you would think that the man had come down from heaven and was relating not what he had learned, but what he had actually seen. Well, Paul, however, though he was carried to the third heaven, so far from delivering anything of the kind, positively declares that it was not lawful for man to speak the secrets which he had seen. Bidding adieu, therefore, to that nugatory wisdom, let us endeavor to ascertain from the simple doctrine of Scripture what it is the Lord's pleasure that we should know concerning angels. Section 5 In Scripture, then, we uniformly read that angels are heavenly spirits, whose obedience and ministry God employs to execute all the purposes which he has decreed, and hence their name as being a kind of intermediate messengers to manifest his will to men. The names by which several of them are distinguished have reference to the same office. They are called hosts because they surround their prince as his court, adorn and display his majesty. Like soldiers have their eyes always turned to their leader's standard and are so ready and prompt to execute his orders. At the moment he gives the nod, they prepare for, or rather are actually, at work. In declaring the magnificence of the divine throne, 
Similar representations are given by the prophets, and especially by Daniel, when he says that when God stood up to judgment, thousands, thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Daniel 7.10 As by these means the Lord wonderfully exerts and declares the power and might of his hand. They are called virtues. Again, as his government of the world is exercised and administered by them, they are called at one time principalities, at another powers, at another dominions, Colossians 1.16 and Ephesians 1.21. Lastly, as the glory of God in some measure dwells in them, they are also termed thrones, though as to this last designation I am unwilling to speak positively, as a different interpretation is equally, if not more congruous. To say nothing, therefore, of the name of thrones, the former names are often employed by the Holy Spirit in commendation of the dignity of angelic service. Nor is it right to pass by unhonored those instruments by whom God specially manifests the presence of his power. Nay, they are more than once called gods, because the deity is in some measure represented to us in their service, as in a mirror. I am rather inclined, however, to agree with ancient writers that in those passages wherein it is stated that the angel of the Lord appeared to Abraham, Jacob, and Moses, Christ was that angel. Still, it is true that when mention is made of all the angels, they are frequently so designated. Nor ought this to seem strange, for if princes and rulers have this honor given them, because in their office they are vicegerents of God, the supreme king and judge, with far greater reason may it be given to angels, in whom the brightness of the divine glory is much more conspicuously displayed. Section 6 But the point on which the scriptures specially insist is that which tends most to our comfort and to the confirmation of our faith, namely that angels are the ministers and dispensers of the divine bounty toward us. Accordingly, we are told how they watch for our safety, how they undertake our defense, direct our path, and take heed that no evil befall us. There are whole passages which relate in the first instance to Christ, the head of the church, and after him to all believers. He shall give his angels charge over thee, to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Again, the angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him, and delivereth them. By these passages the Lord shows that the protection of those whom he has undertaken to defend he has delegated to his angels. Accordingly, an angel of the Lord consoles Hagar in her flight and bids her be reconciled to her mistress. Abraham promises to his servant that an angel will be the guide of his journey, Jacob. In blessing Ephraim and Manasseh prays, The angel which redeemed me from all evil bless the lads. So an angel was appointed to guard the camp of the Israelites. And as often as God was pleased to deliver Israel from the hands of his enemies, he stirred up avengers by the ministry of angels. Thus, in fine, not to mention more, angels ministered to Christ and were present with him in all straits. To the women they announced his resurrection. To the disciples they foretold his glorious advent. In discharging the office of our protectors, They war against the devil and all our enemies, and execute vengeance upon those who afflict us. Thus we read that an angel of the Lord, to deliver Jerusalem from siege, slew 185,000 men in the camp of the king of Assyria, 
in a single night.